Matthew chapter 3. The first two chapters of Matthew uh, obviously deal with the birth of Jesus and his early infancy, and we are going to come back to those events in December as we approach Christmas, as it might be just a little more appropriate at that time of the year. And uh, so we're jumping ahead to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Matthew basically begins this new section of his historical narrative about the life of Jesus with the words, in those days. So the question becomes, in what days? And this is kind of a time reference because there's a big gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Probably 28, 29 years goes by in between those two chapters. And so Matthew says, in those days... And Matthew is saying, it's the days that I'm now telling you about are the days when John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness. And what I want to do is I want to tell you something about those days. I want to tell you something about what was going on with John the Baptist in the wilderness. He's saying, let me tell you what you need to know about this man, John, and what he was preaching and why it's a part of my account about Jesus. Because you remember he said, this is the book of the beginnings of Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. And so he says, in those days, you remember John the Baptist, that crazy man, in those days that he was preaching, he's part of this story too. And Matthew wants us to understand why John the Baptist is part of Jesus's story. And so that's what we're looking at in the first 12 verses of chapter three. And I'll just pray before we read God's word. Father God, uh, this morning, I just pray that... um, our our ears and our minds and our eyes and our hearts would be open to your word. Father, I pray that your word speaks and that your word preaches. Um, John uh, has a very simple sermon here, and we're looking at the sermon that he's preaching. And so, Father, I pray that we would understand his message because it's your message and it's your word that's speaking to us, Father. Um, yeah, we just, we open our hearts to what your Holy Spirit would teach us by your word this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, Matthew chapter three, verses one to 12 says in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Amen. So needless to say, there is a lot going on in this text. And what we want to do is just try and get our arms around everything that is taking place in this text. One of the things about Matthew is he is quite brief in his uh, descriptions of things. He is selectively choosing very few words in order to get across a deliberate theme or a deliberate intent to communicate to us. And we talked a little bit about that last week. So to help get our arms around this, I just want to sort of break this down into the man, the message, and the method or the means. And so we look first at, in this text, the man. So first of all, Matthew wants us to notice the man, John the Baptist. This man, John, shows up on the scene in Judea, and he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and I have a picture of it. Uh, The wilderness of Judea is kind of like the Badlands in Montana. Uh, It is basically desert and rock and not much else. And to get between, it's east of Jerusalem, and so to get to the Jordan River, you would have to walk through this area. And to get this, I I looked it up on Google just to see, like, how were people coming out to him in this area from Jerusalem, which would be the big metropolis area, to where he was is about 60 kilometers. So that's a full, long day's walk just to get there. Then you got to listen to him preach. Then you got to get back again. Right, So this is not something you do and get home for roast beef dinner at noon. Right, This is where people are going. So this man, John, he's living in a wilderness like theirs. He's living out in this wilderness. He eats locusts and honey, just whatever he can gather in the wild. And he has a camel hair tunic tied up with a leather belt. I mean, this is a man's man. Okay, I can only imagine how impressive his beard was. Uh, living in the wilderness, no razor in sight, no wife that we know of to make him shave. And so he's got this camel hair tunic, he's got the leather belt, he's got the big bushy beard, he's living on locust and honey. This is a man's man. He's a tough guy. He's a hard man. And Matthew describes him and wants us to notice him because John should have been recognized for who he was by the people that were standing right there in front of him. You see in verse 3, Matthew says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. And he's referring to Isaiah 43 to 4, where Isaiah says, A voice is going to cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And so John is this voice in the wilderness. And the message he's preaching is one of preparation. He's saying level the hills and lift up the valleys and build a a flat, wide road through the land to make way for a royal arrival, make way because the king is coming. And we still do this today. If some dignitary or monarch or leader from another nation is visiting, we close down the side streets and we block the highway from the airport to the parliament buildings, or wherever that person is going. We make the path straight to go there, and this is what Isaiah is saying will happen. The Messiah is coming, the day of the Lord is coming, and so there's going to be one crying in the wilderness to make a straight path for a new monarch to arrive, a king to arrive. 
And so John is the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way. Not literally. John isn't suggesting Israel had to get its road system in order. He is saying spiritually, straighten crooked paths. The king and the kingdom is near at hand. And so not only do we have Isaiah, but as we looked at last week, we saw in Malachi what to expect before the coming of Messiah. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, I'll remind you, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so they should have been looking for this voice in the wilderness, and they should have been looking for Elijah. And that's why Matthew is so careful to describe him, because camel hair clothing and a leather belt and all the rest of that picture is complete. He's a hard prophet preaching hard news in the desert, and this should have reminded people of someone, because if they looked back in 2 Kings, they would see a description, literally, of Elijah. In 2 Kings 1, 7 and 8, he says, He said to him, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, Oh, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. I know that guy. It's that weird guy who wears hair and leather and eats locusts and honey and stuff like that. And so John is the promised Elijah. Malachi said, Elijah's going to come first. John comes as Elijah, not reincarnated, not literally Elijah, but spiritually Elijah. And Jesus says to his disciples later on in Matthew, he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So it's clear, this is the man that Matthew wants us to know is here. This is Elijah. He's come to prepare the day of the Lord. He has come to make paths straight. He's not the Lord. He's not the Messiah. He's the one who has come before. Now, what is John preaching? What is the message of this man? Verse 2, Matthew summarizes it very briefly. This is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. This This is what John wants people to know. This kind of preaching that John did could be called apocalyptic preaching. You find apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic preaching and apocalyptic language at the turn of ages when something new is coming, at the end of a culture or the end of a nation or at a time of dramatic change. And this still happens today. Any of you who are old enough, the kids are gone, so it's probably most of you, you remember the kind of language that you heard in 1999 right before the Y2K bug was supposed to hit, right? Buy canned food, sell your stock, remember to buy a can opener as well. Um, You know, hide the women and children. There's big trouble coming with Y2K, right? And so there's this major change coming. It's a new age. And so we hear apocalyptic sounding writing and speech For instance, around elections, right? Especially in the last four years, warnings and prophecies of dire things to come. And you get this apocalyptic language. And that's how John is preaching. He's preaching apocalyptically because this is the change of an age. It's the change of a kingdom. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So after what the final prophet Malachi said, that a new age was coming and a king was coming with fire and judgment, John's preaching apocalyptically this way that the new kingdom was here and it was imminent would certainly get noticed. And so this message is of an approaching kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
That means it's imminent. That means it's close. That means it is right here where you can reach out and take it. This is a messianic message to the Jews. They're all waiting for a Messiah to usher in a new kingdom. And John says this new kingdom is right here at our doorstep. You can almost see it. It is close to your hand. You could reach out and take it. And so there's an action that they must take to be ready for this kingdom, this momentous age change that is coming. And he says that action is repent. Because this new kingdom is one of both salvation and judgment, remember Malachi says that the righteous will dance like calves in the sun and the unrighteous will be ash. So it's a new kingdom coming of both salvation and judgment, not just salvation. It's salvation for the righteous and destruction for the unrighteous. And so his preaching is a warning to his own people. John knows the nature of the kingdom that's coming and he knows his people are not ready for it yet. Repentance is required. And that's interesting because the the Jewish people looking forward to the kingdom that is coming are thinking they are the inheritors of it, that they're ready for it. And this is startling because John is basically saying to all these born and bred Jewish, all children of Abraham, all part of the 12 tribes, he's saying to them, you're not ready for it. You have to repent. And we'll get to that a little bit later, what he exactly means by that. But what is repentance? Very simply put, repentance is the act out of remorse of changing or turning. The most basic meaning is of changing your mind. In the Greek, it's metanoia. You change your thoughts from one direction to another. In the case of biblical repentance, you change your mind from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God. There's a a point in your life where you had for a long time disagreed with God, argued with God, rebelled against God, figured you had a different idea, and repentance comes when you change your mind and agree that God is actually right. There was a time in my life when I thought I was wise and God was foolish. Then I repented and realized that God was wise and I'm foolish. Not I was foolish, I'm still foolish, right? So there's a changing of the mind that happens in repentance. You cannot repent and not change your mind about God. But it's more than just changing your thoughts. You're not just convinced of something new. There's another level of repentance, which is turning from one course of action towards another course of action, or from one direction or to another direction. And so for Matthew, both of those things would be true. It's a change of your mind, and it's a change of your life. You forsake the things that you used to pursue, and you now pursue something else. The things of the world that you used to pursue took you that direction. God gives you something new and better and more desirable to pursue, and so you pursue that. And so that is repentance as you turn your life around we've heard that phrase before and it's interesting because john's listeners to his sermon are sort of wondering as well what he means and so if we look at this same account in luke's gospel and all the gospels talk about john the baptist if we look at it in luke's gospel luke records a little bit more of the sermon than matthew does and so it's helpful when it comes to this point of repentance what is matthew talking about In Luke 3, 10 to 14, he says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. 
Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what do we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. And so we see here that in his preaching, John actually gets really personal. And maybe we'll do that later on in this sermon. We'll get real personal as you ask me what you need to do to repent. And I'll give you some suggestions like John does. But you see here that he gets really practical, right? He, he describes the results of repentance. Repentance looks different for different people. I don't know what your repentance particularly looks like. But I do know that like me, you need to repent. The Westminster Catechism 15.5, it says it like this. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. And as every man is bound to make a private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof upon which and the forsaking of them, he shall find mercy. And so we all have particular sins and particular repentance that we need to personally and particularly go to God with and praying for forgiveness and pardon from those sins we then forsake them that's the turning of our mind and our life we will find mercy if we forsake those sins so it involves confession of particular sin we see in verse 6 that they were baptized confessing their sins means to be contrite to acknowledge the wrongness of our sins That's the changing of our minds part of repentance. We change our minds to agree with God that we do sin. We agree with God that He did not intend for us to sin, and therefore our sin is wrong, it's destructive, it's rebellious, it's unrighteous, and we're remorseful to the point, at that point, of wanting to turn from our sin. Repentance is not just being sorry that we got caught. Repentance is the deep realization that our lives must change because our lives, if we continue to live them in sin, are contributing to the kingdom of death rather than to the kingdom of life. And God wants our lives to contribute to the kingdom of life. And so he wants us to stop making death choices that ultimately lead to our destruction and start making life-giving choices. And so that's the turning of our lives. I want to put these old desires and these old deeds to death, and I want to become something new, a new creation. And so John puts it in a few different ways as examples for these people to hear. And these are the examples that he uses with the people and the tax collectors and the soldier. He basically says, if you have stuff and other people don't have stuff, then hold loosely to your stuff. Don't be tight-fisted. Be generous. Don't hoard shelter and don't hoard food. Give away the extra that you have. How many clothes do you really need? You can only wear one set at a time. Right? How much food do you need? How many cars do you need? How many houses do you really need? Are you being generous with what God has given you extra so that the overflow of what you have goes to those that are in need? And you tax collectors, you definitely need to repent. If you are a money handler... Don't cheat. Don't overcharge. Don't skim. If you are a person in society where money flows through your hands in business, then the money should flow through your hands fairly. Or if you are a soldier, if you hold a position of authority over others, don't be a bully. Don't be a thug. 
wield your authority properly and be content with what you receive. Don't try to use your authority to get more than what, how you are compensated. And those are just some examples where John goes through and he says, your problem or your problem or your issue or your sin is ultimately selfish and you have to particularly in your life particularly repent of that and change your life so you're not doing those things. Or as, or as John is going to put it here with the people later, he says, bear fruit of repentance in your lives. If you're truly repentant of that, then your life will change. So as the old saying goes, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So we repent and we are saved by grace and by faith, but if we have saving faith, then works in our life follow. You remember in the summer series, one of our sinners and saints was Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And when Jesus came and ate with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus said to Jesus, if I have defrauded anyone, I will pay back four times as much. And as soon as Zacchaeus said that, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. You see, Zacchaeus was saved by grace, the grace and the mercy of Jesus bestowing it upon him. But when he was saved by that grace and his faith in Jesus, his faith didn't come alone. It came with the action of repaying four times as much as he was owed. So it starts with changing our minds to agree with God, and then repentance follows with forsaking our sin, whatever form it takes, and turning our lives to walk straight paths with God. It's a total transformation that takes place spiritually and then bears fruit, literally. But then I also want us to notice that John emphasizes in this new kingdom and entry into it by a particular method. He says you have to repent, but then there's another piece to it, which is important for us to understand the symbolism of and the meaning of. The people that were coming to hear him speak seem to do this easily, but the religious people are very rattled by it. And the means that John says that you enter into this kingdom is repentance and baptism. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Okay, what's going on here? This is, this is now something new. John has a new audience. Why baptism? And why does Matthew emphasize the heritage of the Pharisees and the lineage of Abraham with respect to it? Why are those two things going together? Well, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer got his title because he was known for baptizing a lot of people. And he is not the founder of the Baptist denomination. I'm sorry to tell you that. Uh, we just sort of borrowed on his idea and uh, sort of took that on because we thought it was really important, and it is really important. But he's known as John the Baptist because he baptizes all these people. And we have to understand going into the New Testament period that for the most part, baptism was a pretty rare occurrence in, in Jewish law and tradition. Okay, Jewish people were not normally baptized. This baptizing thing that John is doing is really unique and new, and that's why he got this name. And if you look back in the law, you, there's really only two kinds of things that would probably be called baptism 
uh, in the Old Testament for a Jewish person. The, the first kind of ceremony that would be like baptism would be the various cleansing ceremonies. And I'm not going to go into all of them, but if you were to look in Leviticus especially, you'd find at various times uh, the Jewish people, people of Israel, were called to do a ceremonial washing if they handled a dead body, if they touched any kind of oozing sore, if they were in contact with certain diseases. And so these washings were practical and ceremonial to rid the person of uncleanness. And so the Jewish leaders would not have too much trouble with that kind of baptism. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, especially the Pharisees, would probably have been doing these cleansing ceremonies a lot because the Pharisees were very particular about how clean they were. If they even touched a Gentile, then they would probably go through this kind of cleansing ceremony. So the Pharisees and Sadducees would not have an issue with that kind of baptism. But the baptism that John was doing was he was immersing people bodily in the Jordan River. He had an entire river and he was putting people underwater and bringing them back up again. Now that baptism looks more like what would be called proselyte baptism. And this is something that someone who was not born a Jew but wanted to become part of the Jewish covenant or the nation of Israel had to perform. This was a, a ceremony for people not born into the kingdom of Israel that gained them entrance into the kingdom of Israel. Okay, that's the kind of baptism that John was doing. So I'll just let you ponder that for a minute. You can see that your brains are working. So you have Jewish people who are coming out to John, who are already part of the nation of Israel, already Jews, and they are going through a ceremony that looks a lot like proselyte baptism, almost as if they are Gentiles and not actually part of the kingdom they think they are a kingdom of. And so when the Pharisees and Sadducees come, and it says that they see him, they come to the baptism to see what's going on. And remember, these Pharisees and Sadducees, had to do the same trip, I doubt they walked, but they had to do that same trip out to the wilderness to see John, to see what he was up to. They come out to find out what is going on, and they find out that John is baptizing Jews. He's declaring that the kingdom of heaven was near at hand, and you had to repent and be baptized to enter into this new kingdom. Being Jewish was not enough. This kingdom was for more than just Israel. In fact, Israelites themselves had to leave their old kingdom behind and be baptized into this new one. This is earth-shattering kind of behavior at this point in history, you have to understand. right? And it's easy for us, especially as Baptists, and we perform baptism a lot, and, and, and we see baptism in a slightly different light. You have to understand that what John was doing here was earth-shattering. It was foundation shifting. And this kind of baptism is going to attract some Pharisees and Sadducees, some Levites and some scribes, and the most religious and dedicated of the nation of Israel are coming out here to find out what this John guy is doing. And they come out to see this baptism that's taking place and to hear firsthand what John is preaching. And so when they show up, now you've got to picture the scene. He is preaching repentance, and the people of Israel just common rank-and-file soldiers and tax collectors and farmers and fishermen and whoever, they're coming and they're receiving this message and they're repenting and confessing sins and getting baptized. And then these religious people show up and he sees them come. They're hard to miss. He spots them and he immediately calls them a brood of vipers. He just pauses in his sermon and says, you are a brood of vipers, you children of snakes. Now, 
I've had some classes and read some books on preaching. This isn't a normal technique that you use when you're preaching to just sort of pick apart your audience and say, you brood of vipers, you children of snakes, I see you watching me. I have a special message just for you. Maybe it would be effective. It's effective for John. Let's bring it. It's a testify. That's right. But this is what John does. Right? And he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And it's kind of an ironic question because it wasn't him. You remember the kingdom is coming and it's one of salvation and judgment. And John is fairly certain that the Pharisees are on the judgment side of the kingdom that's coming. But his sermon, and this is interesting because we, we're hard on the Pharisees and we're hard on the Sadducees, right? But, but when you look here, and John is hard on them. But his sermon to them is exactly the same as his sermon to the regular folk. He says the same thing to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says the same thing to the religious people as he says to the lost. He gives them the exact same message. He says, bear fruit in your life that comes from repentance. And he backs it up for those religious people with a specific warning. He says, don't presume you are part of the kingdom because you are descendants of Abraham. God can raise up children that he needs from anywhere. In fact, God is raising up children and will raise up more children from anywhere and everywhere that you least expect it. There will be Gentiles who will be part of this kingdom. And so John and Matthew, because he's writing this, is making an emphasis on heritage here. He calls them children of snakes. And he tells them that not to depend on Abraham being their father. The nature of this baptism is that it is a declaration that the person is renouncing their dependence on themselves and their heritage and everything that has come before. They have to give up hope in all of their old associations and affiliations and history and heritage. And they have to undergo a transformation into a new kingdom. They have to lay their old citizenship behind and like any Gentile, be baptized into a new kingdom. Paul says it this way in Romans 9. And Matthew is just, it's amazing the themes that Matthew just is laying down. He's laying down theme after theme after theme. And the drumbeats of Matthew will continue through the teaching of Jesus and right through the rest of the New Testament. Paul picks up on it this way in Romans 9. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See, that's how Paul says it. That's what John is saying. He's saying, don't count on the fact that you can count Abraham as your father as if you are actually children of God. He says, don't have false hope in your religious appearance. Don't put false hope in the heritage of your family. You can be born into a Christian home, you can act the part of a religious person really well, and you can fool a lot of people, but until you acknowledge you are a sinner and repent in need of God's grace and to to take you out of the old kingdom, and you are in need of God's grace to remove you from your self-reliance and your self-righteousness, and you die to that in baptism and in repentance, then you are not part of the promise. You're only part of the promise if you die to that old self. See, the Pharisees thought they were going to get to the gate of heaven someday, and when they were asked why they should be let into heaven, they would just point to their family tree, or they would point to their religious works. They gave offerings. They could quote scripture. They didn't lift a box or walk too far on the Sabbath. They didn't eat pork. They did all the right things. But meanwhile, 
and I'll get to Matthew 23 eventually, in time, and we'll get to what Jesus thought of them, at the same time as they're doing all the right things on the outside, we find out that they were at the same time oppressing people for their own gain, and they were not bearing fruit of repentance in their lives. And so John's warning should land on us all as well. What false hopes do we have? Do we come to church every Sunday hoping good attendance will undo what we did during the week? Do we give money hoping that it will balance the scales and count us somehow righteous? Are we hoping that the faith in our Christian parents will somehow rub off on us somehow? When you get to heaven's gate, there is a question you have to figure out in your mind. What answer do you have for why you should be let into the kingdom of heaven? There's only one answer. I shouldn't be. I am not any wiser or more faithful or more righteous than anyone else, but Jesus died for me. And then he reached out and rescued me. That's all of our answers at the gate of heaven if we are believers. If you look back as a Christian, you will recognize you. Your story will be something like this to St. Peter if you imagine this scene at the pearly gates. I was living my own life. I was doing my own thing. And either suddenly or slowly, Jesus intersected my life and kept drawing me in. A friend spoke to me here, or I heard a sermon there, and Jesus just wouldn't leave me alone. And eventually I just gave up, and I repented of my sin, and I moved from darkness into light. And when I experienced the love of Jesus, I was able to stop acting selfishly towards others. When I depended on Jesus, I could stop hoarding everything to myself. When I was affirmed as a child of God, I didn't need to strike back at those who harmed me. With Jesus at the center of my life, I could let go of all the false idols I was depending on before. I have no righteousness of my own. But by God's grace, I have the righteousness of Christ. That's our only answer when we get to heaven. And that's what John is trying to tell the Pharisees. He's saying, you don't have any righteousness of your own. You cannot count on your heritage. You can't count on your parents. You can't count on your good works. You can't count on the show that you put on. There's one thing you have to do. You have to repent and bear the fruit of repentance and be baptized. And that baptism is a forsaking of all the hope that you have in the past. It's dying to the past and it's coming alive in Christ. Anyone who does not enter the kingdom by the fruit-bearing repentance is then judged by the words of Jesus. And John says, and this is all happening imminently, it's happening right now. He says in verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is not the one who is coming. There were people that were confused. They thought maybe John was the Messiah, and he was very quick to say, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who's coming. I'm the forerunner of the one who is coming. And he makes it plain. I can't even carry the sandals of the one who's going to follow after me. I'm messing around here with water. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He will do more than wash you in water. He will refine you in fire. He is coming to sort the wheat from the chaff. He's going to clear the floor. The righteous will be gathered and the wicked will burn. This is what John is preaching, the gospel, the good news of salvation and also of judgment. The kingdom of heaven is invading the kingdom of the world and you have to be citizens of one or the other. Which is it going to be? 
That's John's message. He's not fooling around here with this sermon. And I I just want to let his sermon preach. Because that's what he's saying. To them, he's saying it to us. He's saying it to you. He's saying there is a new kingdom that is at hand. It is right here. It is imminent. You can reach out and grasp this kingdom. It is just a step away from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven. And the way you get there is repentance and baptism and bearing fruit unto repentance. And John is earnest to say, don't miss this opportunity because the one who is coming after me has his winnowing fork in his hand and he is going to stir up the harvest and he's going to take the wheat and burn the chaff. So which will it be? So if the kingdom of God is really right here at hand, if it's present all around us, so to speak, Jesus has brought this kingdom into the world and it is emerging, then what is it that you would need to repent of to get there? Because John is saying you don't get into the kingdom unless you repent. And I don't know if you're a soldier or a tax collector or a farmer or what your particular repentance needs to be, but you know what you need to repent of. Are the people around you seeing the fruit of that repentance? If there is no fruit, John says, then you should circle back to repentance again. Jesus says that we pick up our cross daily. It's not a one-and-done kind of deal. You don't say just generally, oh yeah, I repented when I was 12 years old and now I'm done with that repentance thing. No, if, if you're not bearing fruit unto repentance or in keeping with repentance, then you need to circle back around. We pray and ask God for our daily bread, our daily strength. We bring ourselves to the cross regularly to confess our need for grace. We never leave the cross. It's there with us every day. We remember that the old flesh is put to death and that we are alive as new creations in Christ. That repentant kind of daily life then begins to bear the kind of fruit in our life that Luke records. We see change. As Christians, we're always living a repentant life and that repentant life inevitably leads to fruit. We see it. Or we can look at this sermon and we can ask ourselves, what are we putting false hope in? Maybe you're not circling back to repentance and confession because like the Pharisees, you think you already have everything covered and so you don't even need to circle back to repentance and confession. You have some hope in your family history or in your religious status or because you look good on the outside. You're a good person. You obey the law. You give to the church and things like that. You have no need to confess my secret sins or to really change too much. I just want enough of Jesus that I feel confident in heaven, but not enough of Jesus that it actually changes my life. If you don't have enough of Jesus to change your life, then you don't have Jesus. He has to change your life. You need to bear fruit unto repentance. And so John's warning to the religious should cause us to consider where our hope finally lies. Are we, is our hope entirely in Christ and that he has made us new? Are you baptized into the new kingdom by the Holy Spirit and water? Matthew begins his gospel preach with preaching and baptism in John the Baptist and Let's not forget that Jesus ends the Gospel of Matthew the same way. In Matthew 28, 19, after Jesus comes and after everything else, He says to His disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus hasn't left this water baptism entirely behind at all. He commands it. And so this sermon that 
John the Baptist is preaching is applicable to all of us. What do we need to repent of? What do we have false hope in? Are we allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to baptize us? Have we been baptized? And there's an application to the church here as well. And it's an an application and an encouragement to evangelize. And and this struck me as I was reading this. And and I touched on it a little bit earlier in a humorous way. But, But there's nothing about John's manners or his delivery that is particularly comforting. John is not concerned whether the people he is instructing are offended by the truth that he's delivering. He wants them to hear the truth with clarity. And it's interesting to notice the effectiveness of his preaching. He's a full day's journey, as I mentioned, into the wilderness. And he is preaching confession and repentance of sin. And verse 5 says that everyone is coming out to hear him. He's not going to them. They're coming to him. They are making the journey to hear the truth that this man is saying because John is preaching something different than what they hear in the city and what they hear at the synagogue. If they wanted to hear what the world had to say or they wanted to hear what religion had to say, they didn't have to journey a day out into the desert to hear it. They can hear that anywhere. They can hear that lots of places. And the same is still true today. There are churches out there that have watered down the gospel to the point that it is no gospel at all. There is no sin. There is no idolatry. There is no holiness. There is no value higher than your own personal identity and you feeling good about yourself. Just be true to yourself and you will be saved. That's not the gospel. That's a Kit Kat commercial. Okay, People can hear that anywhere they want to hear it in society. And people are staying away from churches like that in droves because they're not telling them anything new and they're not telling them anything true. And so the encouragement to us here and the lesson for us is to stay true to the gospel even when it's unfashionable and to preach it in ways that sometimes are unfashionable. To say at times, we are sinners. We are in need of repentance and confession. We are not okay. We are in fact rebellious and selfish idolaters. And we have to be encouraged that we need to deliver that message at the right time, in the right context, even when it's hard for people to hear. Because what this account reveals is that there are people who are starving and who are searching to hear truth, even if it's hard truth. They don't want to hear what everybody else is selling. They don't want to hear what everyone else has told them because it has let them down. They are lying awake at 3 o'clock in the morning and all of those feel-good messages have not helped them deal with their guilt and their sin. But we have the gospel. We have the good news. And the good news is this. Your sin is not a problem. God has a solution for your sin. The sin is not the difficult part. The only thing that stands between God solving your sin problem is you. You just have to come and hear the message and repent and confess and give your sin to God and let Him deal with it. He is perfectly able to deal with it. He dealt with it on the cross in Jesus Christ. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. It isn't what everybody likes to hear, but it is what they need to hear. 
So speak the gospel boldly when given the opportunity, and you may be surprised that people may come out of the woodwork wanting to hear it. They want to learn that there is another kingdom. They want to hear that there is a life-giving, eternal kingdom that is right near at hand and that the entrance into it is not working harder to accomplish something. Getting into that kingdom is actually laying down the burden of their sin in order to get in. Laying down the weight of their shame and letting go of themselves in order to get hold of Christ. That is the good news we have. And just like John, we should be bold in sharing it. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot going on in these few verses. The big picture is, is as John says, something new is coming. It's a new king and a new kingdom. And you thought you were ready for him and you thought you would be excited when he came. But let me tell you, you have to repent. You have to give up your old hope in yourself and your hope in your own righteousness. And you have to repent and confess and acknowledge that you are not righteous, but he is. And then the message here as well is that this is truth that the world wants to hear. People traveled across 60 kilometers of hard desert to hear this truth. And there are people in our community who just have to come through those front doors to hear the truth, Lord. But they have traveled in their own wilderness. They have traveled over their own hard roads. They have traveled over their own rocky terrain in their lives to at some point finally get in front of someone who can give them the good news. They can leave the desert behind. They can lay their sin down. They can lay their shame down. Jesus will pick it up. He will bear it on the cross. And they can have eternal life in the kingdom of light and leave darkness behind. Father, make us bold like John that we would proclaim that good news. And not worry about what some religious people might think or what some irreligious people might think. We would just share the good news. Tell the truth plainly and boldly so that people could repent and be baptized and we'd have new brothers and sisters. Father, I pray for that even right now this morning. I don't know who's all here. I don't know what view they've had on Christianity for their whole life or even just for the last few weeks. But if there is someone here this morning, Lord, who wants to repent, who wants to finally lay down the burden of their sin and their shame, who wants to confess that they have been the center of their life and that they need to put Jesus at the center, then I pray that they would do that right now. And Father, I pray that if they are doing that in their heart right now, that they are just confessing their sin and asking for your salvation that by your Holy Spirit that would take place right this moment. And Lord, that they would tell whoever they came with or they come and talk to me or come up to the front and pray afterwards. Lord, just help us to be a confessing, repentant people, wholly dependent on the new King who has come. In Jesus Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.